Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast. With me is Matthew and Aaron, as always. Glad to be back. Happy to be here. We're moving on to Exodus. Oh, Exodus is an excellent book. I love the whole Pentateuch. I love Genesis. I really love it. I started reading it, and I came across the part where it said, there's a new king who did not know Joseph. And I was like, oh, here we go. That sets up the story well, doesn't it? Okay, well, Exodus opens up in Egypt. A long time after the pharaoh, the king who knew Joseph, had died as well. People have forgotten. That's something that happens way too often in the Pentateuch, but that, that happens here. Well, it was about 400 years, right? That's true. That's true. Um, so we shouldn't be too hard on them. But it takes place in Egypt. And um, if you think of Egypt, you're probably thinking of this huge landmass. And that's correct. But as far as livable space, the, the length of the kingdom stretched on for miles and miles and miles. But the width of the kingdom is only like five miles wide. Uh, because it's right up on the Nile River, so the habitable land is pretty minimal. Try saying habitable and minimal multiple times in a row. Habitable, minimal. Nope. Minimal, habitable, habitable, minimal. Matthew, try it. (laughs) It's called speaking in tongues. Do it. Habitable, minitable. Mm. Yeah, Mm. not as fun. So it's in Egypt, and this is a fun fact. Because the Nile River flows from south to north, northern Egypt is known as Lower Egypt, that's the Delta region, and southern Egypt is known as Upper Egypt, so it matches the flow of the Nile River. Um, There's a lot to say about Exodus. One thing that I would want to say is the name. We call it Exodus because that's what the Greek translation of the Bible calls this book, identified by the major event in the book of Exodus, which is the exodus of Israel from Egypt. But in Hebrew, it's called the book of names. Um, so that's that's not a title we use, but it begins with a listing of names. Exodus is essentially a sequel to the book of Genesis, correct? It's part of a series of books? It is. So the way that I would describe it for a few of the nerdier individuals in our church is this. There's this Brandon Sanderson series called Mistborn, And there's the trilogy, and these all happen, you know, with the same characters. But then there's like this later Mistborn that takes place, I don't know, hundreds of years later. Is that right? Maybe. Yeah, I think it might be. Yeah. So that's it. You have you have Genesis and Exodus, you have the Mistborn trilogy, and now you have the sequel. Okay, so I think when we when we read the book of Exodus, in most of the books that we read, we try to identify what's the main point of this book. That's really not possible to do for a lot of books in the Bible. Uh, But what I'd want to say in Exodus is you see the formation of God's people and you see the revelation of God's character. Uh, You see the progression of redemptive history. So a lot takes place in the book of Exodus. Without the book of Exodus, uh, the rest of the Bible doesn't make sense. And in fact, over and over again throughout the Old Testament, the biblical authors will refer back to the events that are recorded in the book of Exodus. So this becomes a really important book to know. Uh, so we we need to read this carefully. We need to know it well, and we'll start to see the imagery and aspects of the book of Exodus that filled not only the Old Testament, but also the New. Can you give us a couple geographical locations and related to the structure of the book? Just a general, so as we're reading through, just kind of understanding at a, a high level where the, where the what's happening in the book of Exodus? Yeah, that's a good question. It starts out in Egypt, right? And then they go out into the wilderness, 
figure to Mount Sinai. Uh, the problem is nobody knows where Mount Sinai is located. So if we're trying to map these things out, it's really actually kind of difficult. So I can't really say anything about that, but they move around a lot. They wander around in the wilderness a lot, and they don't really leave the wilderness in the book of Exodus. Uh, but we're just looking at the first 14 chapters. Um, so I'll, I'll talk through those chapters um, here as we go. All right. So we start in chapter one. And uh, from the very beginning, Israel is described in this way in verse six. They were fruitful. They increased rapidly. They multiplied and they became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. They swarmed. They swarmed. That's the language that's used. And what the author is doing here is showing that Israel is like a new creation. They're like a new Adam figure. They're like the people who respond positively to God's initial commands to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. That's what they're doing. But there's a problem. They're in bondage, right? They're they're serving the Egyptians um, and uh, they are not being treated well by the Egyptians. And then the Egyptian king is even more cruel to them. He orders that these uh, male sons, I guess that's the only kind of son that there is. These, these sons are going to be killed, thrown into the river to kind of reduce the population. It's a little strategy that he's put into place. Uh, so he's wicked, right? He's a wicked guy who's trying to subvert God's promises to Abraham that his offspring would become as numerous as the stars. Pharaoh does not want that. He, he wants to remain in authority over these people by keeping them limited. Uh, so then in chapter two, Moses is born anyway, and he's protected by the Lord. And ironically, he's raised up in Pharaoh's household on Pharaoh's funds, educated by Pharaoh. Uh, he He's being sponsored by the guy who tried to kill him, and, and that guy doesn't even know it. Is this like uh, an ancient example of a rebellious teenage daughter where her dad's like, kill all the Hebrew boys and she finds one, and she's like, no, I'm keeping him, raising him, going to make him nice and healthy right inside your house on your dime, Dad. That's the way I could—it could be taken that way. I like taking it that way. I, that's, I've never taken it that way before, but I'm not opposed to it. All right, sweet. That's what happened. I think we need to give a shout-out to the midwives that are named here. Shifra and—how are you going to pronounce that other name? I want to hear the way you pronounce it. Wait, Pua? What verse is this? I'm going to pronounce it Pua. Verse 15. Yep. Of chapter two? 1. No, yeah. chapter 1. Uh, chapter 1. Shifra and Pua. I think that's fine. Um, I think it's significant that they're named here, and they're courageous enough to stand up to Pharaoh, or the Pharaoh, because the Pharaohs aren't even named. The rulers of Egypt, unnamed characters, but these two courageous yeah. ladies are named here and remembered, and I would assume people are have named their kids after them. Yeah, these ladies are named. That's important. You're right. The Pharaoh is not named. He's nameless. And even though he he wants to make a name for himself, so to speak, instead, whose name in terms of the king are we going to know? We're going to know Yahweh's name, not Pharaoh's name. And, And then we know the names of these ladies who otherwise are probably minor figures, at least compared to Pharaoh. Moses is born and raised in Pharaoh's household, um, but then he essentially murders somebody. And later texts of scripture show us that he's trying to 
protect his people. He thinks he's going to be appointed as their prince. He's going to lead them to freedom and captivity. He thinks he's doing the Lord's work, essentially. But those people reject him. And in fact, they taunt him. And so then he flees off into the wilderness. And there he gets a wife, Zipporah. Um, So they have a son. His name is Gershom. That's kind of a weird name, but it essentially sounds like the phrase, a stranger there, because he's been a resident alien in a foreign land. And then this king of Egypt died, but Israel is still enslaved. They're still groaning in their difficult labor. Uh, But then God hears in Exodus 2.24, he hears their groaning, he remembers his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the Israelites, and God knew. So the events in Exodus are going to be connected to God's covenantal promises with Abraham. Then in chapter 3, Moses is shepherding the flock in the wilderness, and he sees this obscene or absurd sight of a bush on fire not being consumed. It's remarkable. And so like most of us, Moses said to himself, why don't I go over there and look at this? This bush isn't being burned up. So he does, and he interacts with God. God speaks to him and identifies himself, and he commissions Moses to essentially be his representative and to lead Israel out of their captivity. Moses does not think that he's capable of doing this. And in his interactions with God, he keeps saying, please don't have me be the one who did, who attempts this. Perhaps he's thinking about the way that he was rejected already by Israel. And that foreshadows over and over again where Israel doesn't want to follow his leadership. But then significantly in 414, the Lord's anger burns against Moses. In uh, in God's anger is going to burn against Israel throughout this book. Uh, but Moses experiences it here first. So this little section where we kind of have this autobiography of Moses, is that kind of a, a smaller story in paralleling Israel's story later in, in throughout this book? I think it really does. You you see a lot of similarities between them. And then you also could contrast Moses with Abraham, where God appears to Abraham and speaks to him, and Abraham responds with a willing, I am, or or here I am I, or whatever he says. He, he listens to the Lord, and he obeys, right? You're called out, and he goes. Um, God speaks to him, and it's only a bit later when Abraham starts to say, ah, I don't know if you can fulfill your promises. Take Ishmael. And, and that's the kind of attitude that we see expounded on in Jacob, where he says, God, if you bring me safely to this place, then you'll be my God. Well, now we have something similar here with Moses. So Moses returns to Egypt, and he's essentially told to tell Pharaoh that he needs to release God's people because Israel is his firstborn son. Israel's identified as God's firstborn son. And there's a warning from the very beginning in chapter four that God is about to kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. And and we know by the end of the plagues that happens. It's also significant, I think, that from the very beginning, God tells Moses that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he won't let the people go. And that's a phrase that we see over and over again throughout this story. But God hardened his heart, or Pharaoh hardened his own heart, just as the Lord had said. Uh, but before those interactions happen, we have this really bizarre scene in chapter 4, verse 24, where on the trip at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him 
and intended to put him to death. And we don't know if this is talking about Moses or about Moses' firstborn son. And this is a really hard section of Exodus to translate. So look at five translations and everyone will translate it in a different way. But what happens is Moses' wife cuts off her son's foreskin and she throws it at Moses' feet. Okay, so she circumcises him and she says that, Moses is a bridegroom of blood to me. That's somewhat of an obscure phrase, but probably is saying something like, um, in our marriage, you're bringing me under the wrath of God in the punishment of death. You're, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. Um, but then God let him alone, Moses or the son, and she accuses him again of being a bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. And I think the point of this story is that God's wrath is going to be poured out on all of those who resist him and who do not follow him and do not obey him. And just as Israel is going to need to trust God by putting blood on their doorposts and observing this Passover, otherwise their firstborn sons will be killed, God God is not a respecter of persons. People need to trust him and obey him. Moses experiences that here, and Israel is going to experience that as a whole later on. Anything you guys want to say up to this point? Well, we're introduced to Moses' brother, Aaron. And it made me wonder, did he just narrowly escape the boys having to be killed in Egypt? Was Moses just born at the right time, right when Pharaoh decided to make that? Yeah, we don't know the age difference between them, do we? No. Nor do we know the age difference between Moses and his sister Miriam, right? We, we just don't know. But Aaron's alive, and apparently... He's a better speaker than Moses is, or at least a more willing speaker. Um, so Moses is going to be the prophet for, or, or God, really, but his mouthpiece will be Aaron. So nobody knows where Mount Sinai is? No, people speculate, but we don't really know. They got like a few mountains that they eye? Yeah, I think there are possibilities. Part of the problem is that the the possible locations I believe are in countries that are not that wouldn't allow people to come in and excavate or do do studies that way. Oh, like current day. Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. Because they they have a pretty good beat on where the Noah's Ark was. No. I thought I heard that. They yeah, people have said that stuff, but lots of those things are hoax. Yeah. AJ's reading a text message. As the story continues, I I won't outline all of Moses' interactions with Pharaoh, but over and over again, Pharaoh hardens his heart, um, and God continues to make himself known. And over and over again, you'll you'll read that God is going to make himself known through these events. Uh, He's going to show himself to be great. He's going to show that there's no one like him on planet Earth. And he's showing that to both Egypt and Israel. Israel needs to learn these lessons because they are over and over again going to be tempted to worship other gods or to be fearful of other nations. They need to know that there's no one like the Lord. So over and over again, these these events take place and God proves himself faithful and powerful time and time again. Now, the Egyptians, they might have been worshiping certain gods that had a correlation to the plagues that were being inflicted on them. Is that also another indication of God triumphing over false gods of the Egyptians? 
Yeah, the plagues represent warfare, but not primarily between Israel and Egypt, or even Moses and the Pharaoh and his magicians, but between Yahweh God and the Egyptian gods. Um, So there's a lot of conversation, scholarly writing, about the way that these plagues would line up with different Egyptian deities. And I think that's probably right. And our confirmation comes in Exodus 12, 12, where Yahweh says that he'll pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and that he will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt. So I think even within the text, even if we're not aware of the different Egyptian deities, uh, we know that he's exercising divine warfare. And I don't think it's fruitful to try to line up each plague with just one deity. I don't think that the Egyptians were able to do that because they had gods with overlapping powers and abilities. Um, there are some that might be more clear than others, right? So we might think of Ra, the sun god, and when, when the darkness comes, maybe that clearly is understood as a defeat of that god. But I don't know that it's fruitful for us to try to identify precisely which god is being... Um, you know, corrected there. Instead, I think we should think positively about the way that God subverts other deities. So instead of trying to spend a lot of time describing ancient pagan belief, we can just say God defeated all these other gods. He is God alone. Now, more than that, while I I think that's happening with each plague, I think more than that, Moses is describing a decreation account in Egypt. So it's like he's saying, God has power over life and death. God can create and he can decreate, right? He can destroy. Um, So you could parallel each of these plagues with a day of creation. So day one, light, and not in the same order. So I'm not trying to say chronologically it's reversing things, but day one, light is created according to the Genesis 1 account. Well, darkness prevails prevails over light in Egypt. Day two, waters are ordered and separated. Well, there's chaos in the waters in Egypt. Uh, Day three, dry land and vegetation. Well, there's destruction of vegetation in Egypt. Day four, creation of sun and moon. Well, there's the darkening of the sun. Day five, creation of birds, fish, and sea life. Well, there's the death of fish and the swarming of frogs, right? Day six, creation of animals and humans. Well, then there's plague of insects and boils and killing of their firstborn. So it's almost like God is exercising a decreative power in Egypt in order to create the new new creation, which is Israel. We'll talk about that in coming weeks of the 10 words that speaks Israel into existence. After the plagues, um, or during them, as they're leading up to the final one, God gives the instructions for the Passover. And I just want to note that there's probably some poor translations here. Uh, There are two different words that are used that are both translated as passing over. And one is correctly rendered that way, but the other one is probably better rendered hovering over. And this is what I'm trying to clarify. We can't tell the difference between these two words because our English translations translate them the, the same way. And we get this image that God is sending a destroyer into Egypt, um, but when and God is the destroyer, right? And when God the destroyer sees the blood on the doorposts, he would pass over, and, and we think of him jumping over it or something like that, when really, in those cases, the, the verb should be rendered hover over. 
So it's like God is both the destroyer and the protector, and he, his presence hovers over this house that's been marked with the blood, and he keeps his destroying presence out while his protective presence remains over that people. So this isn't a huge deal. I don't think we need to change the name of the, the feast from Passover to hover over or cover over or something like that. But I think there's something there where we start to see God is both protector and destroyer. And that perhaps has implications later on as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, this ritualized version of the Passover, where, where we see the God who um, exerts his wrath, he destroys, but he also protects. And we see that ultimately in Jesus Christ who absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. As we continue to think about the Passover, I'd also point out that God tells them to do this so that they'll remember these events, so that their children would ask them about these events. And we could call it a meal of remembrance, right? And we call the Lord's Supper that too. It's a memorial. But I think it helps us to think about what it means for something to be a memorial when we read this text. It's not a distant memory, and it's not cold or unaffected, but it's a participation in something. So when we talk about the Lord's Supper as a memorial, I think we need to connect it more to the way that the the Israelites celebrated the Passover. It's an active engagement in it. It's not this passive thing. Um, So for whatever that's worth, I I think it's helpful to remember that. Finally, as we get to the end of of this section in Exodus, I just want to once again make a connection to Genesis to show that these things are connected. When God spoke to Abraham, he said, your offspring will be captives in a foreign land for 415 years. And in Exodus 1240, Uh, It records the time that the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years. So that was pretty close, within 15 years. Um, God kept his word, and he remembered his promises to Abraham, and he acted on their behalf. So Exodus 14 recounts the final escape of Israel from Egypt. And um, when we read these things, I'm helped by an address that Tim Keller gave when he was talking about Exodus 14, and this is on the Gospel Coalition website. This is from 2011. He's recounting a conversation that he listened in on by two other scholars. And um, R.C. Sproul is one of them. He's talking to another guy, Matier. I, I forget the guy's first name, Alec maybe, or something like that. But Sproul is talking to this guy, and he, he said this. He asked him, tell us about the connection between the Old and the New Testaments. And Matyur replied something like this. Think about it. Think of what an Israelite would say on the way to Canaan after passing through the Red Sea. If you asked an Israelite, who are you? He might reply, I was in a foreign land under the sentence of death and in bondage, but I took shelter under the blood of the lamb. And our mediator led us out and we crossed over. Now we're on our way to the promised land, though we're not there yet. But he has given us his law to make us a community, and he has given us a tabernacle because we must live by grace and forgiveness, and he is present in our midst, and he will stay with us until we arrive home. Then Matir added, that's exactly what a Christian says, almost word for word. I love it. I, I think that's exactly right. People aren't going to want to just listen to me talk. They want, they want raw Matthew and thoughtful AJ. <laughs> I'm thinking. So Matthew, are you the oldest son? Yes. Because you're the only son, right? Yes. You're not the firstborn, but you're the firstborn son. AJ, where are you in the lineup? I'm the firstborn son. I'm the firstborn son as well. Ooh. So if we were in Egypt 
and our parents did not apply the blood, um, we would not have woken up the next morning. And this podcast would not be happening. Exactly. I think God would have preserved the podcast by raising up others. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it probably would be better than this one. Okay, that's all I have on Exodus. But I have a ton on Matthew. <laughs> Go for it, baby. No. We're picking up in Matthew 19 and going through Matthew 22. Here we go. Uh, Moving to our passage in Matthew for the week, Matthew 19 through 22. um, It starts off with Jesus answering a question about divorce. And he goes on to talk about possessions and the kingdom. He tells some parables that were very uh, informative. He gives further instruction to his disciples. There are some blind men that are healed. And we have the triumphal entry in Matthew 21. Jesus also cleanses the temple, and children praise him. He gives more parables and examples about a fig tree and a wedding banquet to mostly round out our reading for the week. Aaron, what rousing observations do you have from this passage for the week? Well, I would want to start in Matthew 19 and make a brief comment about Jesus's teaching on divorce. Love it. Obviously, this is debated, and people try to come to conclusions about, you know, is divorce permissible or not, or in which situations, and is remarriage permissible or not. In fact, AJ, I remember you and I, many years ago, before we were friends, had a conversation about this. And we each took a view, and I think we held the same view. And then years later, I changed my view, and then we talked about it one time, and you were surprised about that. But I think it just goes to show that it's it's hard to come to clear conclusions about this. And one of those reasons is because Jesus doesn't say all that there is to say about divorce here. And this is maybe why it's helpful, helpful to talk about biblical teaching as pixelated and networked. So you just get little pieces of it and they connect to the larger biblical teaching and you have to take these things together. Um, So you have to take what Jesus says here, but then you also have to consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, right? And even there you have to make decisions. Is Paul giving the final word or is he giving an example about how to reason your way through novel or new situations where you're encountering different relationships and relational issues? Well, these things are hard to decide, but I just want to say that probably as Christians, we have to read these things, work through them together, and understand this is one place where we probably all won't always agree well, we see Jesus doing that here as he explains this. He looks back to Genesis in the creation account, and he looks back to Exodus, and in his explanation at least, about the history of this issue with Moses and the Israelites. And so I think as if we follow Jesus and his example here, we, sh- we should know to, to look through the whole revelation of, of God's word and, and search out the answers. Like you said, network, networking these, these passages together. Yeah, and then I think the other the other piece is that we have to recognize the context in which this unfolds, and that's in Jesus's interactions with people who are trying to trip him up. 
And so it's probably not quite right for us to say that Jesus is actually addressing this issue. It's probably more correct to say he's addressing these people. And uh, even there, you know, not only is he addressing people who are going after him, he's talking to people who are hearing it from a particular angle. So I was talking with someone about this recently, and uh, we just were doing a little bit of a thought experiment. If a Gentile woman had come to Jesus asking genuinely for his teaching on divorce, what kind of answer would he have given her? Well, I don't think the exact same answer that he gave the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are trying to trip him up somewhere. So we have to also be sensitive to the context when these questions are raised. What's your stance and conclusion? I would recommend a book called Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. And I'm blanking on the guy's name who wrote it. But if you just Google Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage, I think it's by PNR Publishing. Anyway, it's really helpful. Sounds like a fine resource. Newman, I think is his name. Anyway, so then as we continue in Matthew, the other, the other place that I'd want to draw our attention to is Jesus's interaction with the rich young ruler. And this guy comes to him and asks, what good must I do to have eternal life? Um, and Jesus says, well, uh, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Work salvation right there. Exactly. But then this young man asks Jesus, which ones? And Jesus answered, he lists, you know, several of the Ten Commandments. And the guy says, I have kept all these. What still do I lack? Interestingly, in verse 21, Jesus says, if you want to be perfect. Only one other time in the book of Matthew has this word shown up. And that's at the conclusion of Jesus's Beatitudes and his intensification of the law where he gives the final statement, be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And that rounds out his command, essentially, to love your neighbor as yourself. And he is telling this guy, you need to keep my commands. You you need to be like your Father in heaven, the only one who is truly good. And you need to find your way of life in the commands that I've given. That's what will give you fullness of life in full flourishing. And this, this guy was not willing to receive it. And so he walked away sorrowful. So I don't think this is so much Jesus teaching, you can earn your way to heaven, but he's trying to show him what it looks like to live a full life now, what it looks like to progress towards the perfection of our Father in heaven now. And that's by adopting the ways and the values of Jesus. And this guy was unwilling to do it. See, the eye of the camel is actually a gate in Israel. No, I'm just not going there. Good. I feel like you guys need to keep saying more things. Otherwise, I'm... Those were the two things that I was going to say. Okay, well, I have another thing to bring up. Perfect. As we continue to look in this section of our reading on Matthew, we get to chapter 22, and we end, or get close to the end of our reading, with an interaction between Jesus and the Sadducees. And this starts in verse 23 of Matthew 22. And Matthew says, the same day... Some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came up to him and asked him about this hypothetical situation where there's this guy who dies, he has no children, his brother marries his wife, um, and there were seven of them, they kept getting married and died, so they want to say, if the resurrection exists, uh, which one is this lady going to be married to in the resurrection? And they're actually borrowing from a story in the apocryphal book, Tobit, 
So that's interesting. So this is where it's good for you to have a knowledge of Second Temple literature, because that frames some of these questions. And Matthew Wiedemann has read a good amount of that. Have you read Tobit yet? I have not gotten to Tobit. Well, maybe you'll you'll do that here in the future, but you'll you'll be able to draw some parallels between the two. But I I want to say that this is a really complicated event. And Jesus responds to them and says, you are mistaken because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. But then he goes on and says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, I don't know about you guys, but probably you've heard this text used to describe life after we're raised from the dead in in a description that marriage is not part of the new creation or something like that. I don't totally know what to think about this, but I recently came across something that challenged my, my thinking on this and probably enough for me to not give that description again, um, even though I'm not sure what I think yet. And that's this. What was the resource that you came across? Uh, it's, it's a book called Biblical Philosophy by a guy named Drew Johnson. And this is just an aside in the book where he's trying to make the case that you have to know the Bible really well because otherwise you might really misunderstand what Jesus is teaching. And this is the example that he uses. He says, if, if you're reading this and you think that Jesus is genuinely answering their question on their terms and you're not paying attention to the language Jesus uses, you're going to leave with the conclusion that Jesus is actually teaching something about marriage in the afterlife when he's not at all. So he doesn't use this description, but I think essentially we could say the Sadducees are playing checkers and Jesus is playing chess. So over and over again, when, when people try to confront him and stump him, he, he responds in an almost parable-like way where it hides things from those who are already blind and it reveals those things to people who have eyes to see. And I think that's what's going on here. And it's found in the phrase, um, marry and being given in marriage. Now, this phrase to our unacculturated ears probably just sounds like he's talking about marriage just like these guys are. But later in Matthew, in Matthew 24, 38, Jesus describes the days of Noah uh, when, when judgment is about to come. He says that it will be like the days of Noah were. In those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. So this stock phrase, we might call it, of marrying and giving in marriage is indicative of, indi- of individuals who are facing God's judgment and they can't see it. They've been given all the signs of God's judgment. They've been warned of God's judgment, but they don't have eyes to see. So they go about life as if nothing is coming. They're not concerned about it. They don't care that judgment is coming. They don't even see it. So they're they're just doing what they always do. They eat and drink. They're marrying and giving in marriage. And these things are not sinful in and of themselves, but it's just showing that they don't recognize judgment is coming. Well, Jesus has already critiqued the Pharisees for being able to read the signs in the sky when a storm is coming, but not be able to read the signs of the Son of Man being there. And now, once again, he's doing the same thing with the Sadducees. He's saying, look, you guys all have your head in the sand. You're, you're talking about the resurrection as if it's this hypothetical event, 
but the resurrection is paired with God's judgment. It's that final day. And um, don't be marrying and giving in marriage. Don't, don't be people who are blind to this. So it's not a phrase that actually teaching about marriage and the resurrection. It's actually an indictment against the Sadducees' inability to see the coming judgment. That's what Drew Johnson rec- at least argues for. I think it's pretty convincing. I, d- I don't fully know what to say. I asked someone else about this today in preparation for the podcast, and he said, well, what do you do with that final line of, but are like angels in heaven? So this is my response to that. Drew Johnson didn't address this, so I had to puzzle it out a little bit. In Matthew 24, when Jesus is talking about that final day, he says, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son know when this the day or hour will be. Only the Father knows. But the Son and the angels are are operating with an expectation of that day. They recognize that it's going to come. They're aware of it. So I think that actually further supports Jesus's point. Uh, Don't be marrying and giving in marriage. Don't be blind to the coming judgment, but be like the angels who are expecting this hour to come, even though they don't know when it will be. Be like Noah, who didn't know when the flood would come, but he expected it. What do you guys think about that? I like it. I'm a fan. Makes sense. Well, you know, people like to use this text for supporting the eternal state on the new heavens and new earth. So we don't know anything further about that. We have no insight there. Yeah. Whereas this would seem on a first reading to, to support that. Yeah, it's frustrating and especially frustrating to someone who wouldn't like what I just argued for, because I think that person would say, but then Jesus isn't answering their question. But that's also the whole point is Jesus isn't answering their question. He's redirecting their attention. And like he does over and over again, when people ask him a question, sometimes he'll answer with a question that changes the whole conversation altogether. And I think that's what he's doing here. But it is unsatisfactory to us because we really want to know the answer to their question. Uh, But Jesus says, don't worry about that. Worry about how you ought to live now in this life. And I think that's what he's saying to the rich young ruler. Stop trying to figure out how you can inherit eternal life. Figure out how you can live a full flourishing life now. Um, and we don't really like those answers because they demand sacrifice and faithfulness. Anything else you guys want to say about Matthew? I feel really bad that I've been talking for most of the last two episodes, um, but well, don't want to apologize either. You're the expert. Well, I'm not an expert, though. Compared to... That's the thing. I don't know if you guys feel this way, but the more that I've been reading the Bible this year, the more I'm realizing there are things that I have not ever paid attention to. So it's not like we're experts or something. It's just we're observing things that maybe we haven't picked up on before. Well, that's certainly the case for me, but I've been noticing just a lot of the parallels in the New Testament back to the Old Testament, and it's just, mm-hmm. like you said, it's crucial to know the Bible, to, to really understand it, and starting to see the lack of knowledge for me. Also lacking knowledge. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad we're reading the Bible together. I'm glad some people are joining us. I talked to one person at our church on Sunday she said she was listening through this and reading, so it's encouraging to know other people are doing it as well. Uh, so let's keep it up, even though we're week five. Uh, hopefully the habits have been formed uh, and will continue to grow in the knowledge of our Lord. Yeah, thank you to everyone who's listening. Thank you for you guys for being here. I would just like to say to you guys, thanks for doing this. I know it's time and commitment. And um, though our listeners might not notice this, or they probably notice if they listen to old episodes of our podcast, AJ is functioning as our podcast producer, and he is doing a fine job. So AJ, thank you not only for hosting this, but also producing our podcast show. No problem. I'm going to cut this. Let's cast some pods.
right. This podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church. You can find out more at resurrectionmn.org. Hallelujah.